Located in the foothills of Wyoming's spectacular Wind River Range, Wyoming Catholic College, an accredited four-year Great Books institution, is built on the ancient Western tradition of the liberal arts and the freedom of the American West. The college offers its students an immersion in the primary sources of the classical tradition, the grandeur of the mountain wilderness, and the spiritual heritage of the Catholic Church. Students experience the illumination of imagination and intellect through the great books and traditional disciplines, literature and philosophy, mathematics and theology, science and Latin, and an outdoor program second to none. The college celebrated an in-person graduation with its seniors last year and welcomed its largest freshman class ever this year. Learn more about the college's unique space in the world of American higher education at wyomingcatholic.edu. We have with us George Weigel here again. Uh, to speak of a new book out entitled Not Forgotten, Elegies for and Reminiscence of a Diverse Cast of Characters, most of them admirable. Welcome, George. Thanks, Mark. Good to be with you. Uh, Now, you say we've got not forgotten, we don't have gone, but that really is the missing word in in, in the title, right? These These are people who've passed on. We're at that age. We see people we've known. Is this part of what prompts the book? It certainly put the idea in my head. I have been writing a weekly column in the Catholic Press for the better part of 40 years now, and it occurred to me in late 2019, early 2020, that I I seem to have been writing an awful lot of uh, reminiscence columns, uh, memorial columns, obituaries, if you will, in recent years, and then it occurred to me that if I put together a collection of these sorts of things that I had written over the decades, lightly edited them, uh, it might make for an interesting album of human personalities, people of consequence, people who left a mark on history. What I've been most pleased about in the reception of the book, it's only been published for about a month now, is that people seem to find it encouraging uh, and inspiriting. These are not only interesting people, they are people who uh, lived vocationally. And if there's one thread that connects figures from religion, politics, the arts, science, sports, entertainment, it's this theme of vocational living, living, living purposefully. And if that helps people... Uh, that reminder of the possibility of living purposefully uh, helps people in this difficult patch that we're still in, uh, then I'm very happy for that, even though it isn't quite what I had thought of when I when I thought of putting this book together. You've talked about, on the last podcast, you, we, we, we were talking about the, the papacy, and you have Pope John Paul II uh, in there. I thought we would shift to another historic figure, another historic institution. Uh, You described something in late summer 1966. It was a baseball game. What happened there and who was involved? It was October 9th, 1966, the fourth game of the World Series in Old Memorial Stadium in Baltimore. Uh, My grandfather Weigel uh, took me uh, and the Orioles swept uh, the vaunted Los Angeles Dodgers in, in four straight games. The hero, as he had been throughout that whole season, was the greatest ball player I've ever seen live and in person, Frank Robinson. Frank died a couple of years ago, and he is one of the miniatures 
uh, miniature portraits in in the book. He was an extraordinary athlete. He was an extraordinary human personality. And I have never seen anyone uh, who was so capable of bending a baseball game to their will hmm. as as Frank Robinson. He was a ferocious competitor and married to skill and grace and made an enormous impression on me in the in the 6 years uh, he played in Baltimore and I keep his uh, Hall of Fame uh, plaque on my uh, desk. Hmm. You know, you know George, I I when I was a kid loved the Baltimore Orioles. We were we were in the Maryland suburbs of Washington DC. I actually loved the Washington Senators too. Good Frank Howard. Loved loved watching him play. But uh Frank Robinson, did you ever see him get misbehave on the field? No. I mean he played hard. In that oh, yeah. sense he was he was like uh, the other Robinson in the book, who's hardly another, Jackie Robinson, one of the really heroic figures of the American 20th century. I mean, these guys played hard. Uh, they came to play, and uh, you knew it. But there was never anything untoward about it at all. And as I say, the skill level was was incredible. Uh, Frank Robinson came to the Orioles in an incredible trade over the winter of 1965-66. And when the Orioles started spring training that year, I think they were they did it in Miami in those days, there was a 20-year-old guy who would eventually join Frank Robinson in the Hall of Fame, Jim Palmer, future Hall of Fame pitcher. He would, This was his first spring training with the big team. And when he heard the sound of a ball, batting practice ball, rocketing off of... Frank Robinson's bat for the first time. He turned to the other players standing around the cage and said, we just won the American League. Huh. That was six weeks before opening day. And they did. They, they had it won by mid-July. I mean, it was they coasted into the fall and, and then swept the Dodgers in four straight uh, games in the series. With, in the first game, Frank and Brooks Robinson back-to-back home runs in the first inning off Don Drysdale. Another Hall of Famer. Let's turn to to politics because one of the things you're able to do in the portraits is to get to some of the some of the political events or political trends in America in the the 20th and and early 21st century. How did the second? This is on a, a portrait of Lindy Boggs. How did the second Clinton administration respond to the Vatican's objections to abortion? Lindy became the uh, U.S. ambassador to the Vatican in, in what the uh, Clintonistas imagined was an act of payback. As you'll remember, there had been a big dust-up at the 1994 uh, Beijing, uh, no, the 1994 Cairo World Conference on Population, and then the 1995 Beijing Conference on Women, at both of which the Clinton administration had tried to get abortion on demand declared an international human right. Uh, The Vatican knew what it was doing diplomatically in those days and pushed back hard and and won. Uh, This was not forgotten in in the White House, particularly the East Wing of the White House, where Hillary Clinton reigned supreme. So when it came time uh, to appoint a new U.S. ambassador to the Vatican after 
President Clinton's reelection in '96, the administration floated two names of people who were just obviously not going to be acceptable to the Holy See. If I remember correctly, one of them was a triple divorced <laughs> bundler of campaign funds for Clinton. And the other was, I think, a, a former religious sister who was working in a state government somewhere. In any event, I mean, in a normal diplomatic procedure, the sending company quietly vets the name with the receiving entity, which can, you know, say, no, thanks, try again. This is what the Vatican said twice. The Vatican knew how to push back against bullying regimes in those days. So the Clintonistas said, okay, you don't want the ones we want to send. We'll give you this 81-year-old former member of Congress. The only problem was Lindy didn't want to do it. <laughs> she had just retired after, I think, eight, nine, maybe ten terms in the House of Representatives. Uh, she was looking forward to retiring to New Orleans, her home, and kicking back a little bit, which is an easy thing to do in New Orleans. Uh, so she told her her daughter, the NPR and, and later ABC TV personality, Cokie Roberts, I'm, I'm going to turn it down. And Cokie says uh, to Lindy, come on, Mom, it's the two things you like doing best in the world, going to mass and going to parties. <laughs> <laughs> now, I... I don't know whether that did the trick, but Lindy went, and of course there's much more to that job than going to mass and going to parties, and she did a spectacularly good job. But but wait, wait, George, you gave her some specific advice. Well, I was working on the first volume of my John Paul II biography in, in those days, and after she was quickly confirmed by the Senate, uh, I believe it was the night she got to Rome, uh, some seminary students at the North American College, one of whom was from New Orleans, invited her over to the college, to the student kitchen, for a dinner that now Monsignor Christopher Nolte, then a seminarian and a fantastic cook, was going to prepare in the student kitchen up on the fifth floor of the college. So I just happened to run into Lindy as she was coming into the college, and she pulled me aside and said, we've got to talk. I said, well, what's convenient for you? She says, can you come to my office at 10 o'clock tomorrow morning? Fine. So I went over to what was then the U.S. Embassy to the Vatican, which was nestled in a stand of trees above the Circus Maximus. And um, after genteely getting rid of the Hillary Clinton spy who had been <laughs> placed, in the, placed in the embassy, uh, Lydia and I sat down together, and she said, you know, what's going on here? And I said, well, it's a big mess. It's a kind of a train wreck, actually. And, you know, you're never going to get anywhere on, on the main points of, of disagreement, which she understood because Lindy had been a completely solid pro-lifer throughout her time in the Congress. So I said I, what my advice would be is to concentrate on, pick three things that, you know, you can agree on, you can work together on, and concentrate on that and, and see if that doesn't help repair the lines of communication. So we talked about that for a while and, and quickly came up with um, the defense of international religious freedom, uh, fighting the sex trafficking of uh, women and young girls, 
and dealing with the impacts of technology on society. So Lindy kept focused on that, went to a lot of masses and parties, charmed the socks off of everybody in the Vatican, so that when Jim Nicholson got there as ambassador uh, the, the week after 9-11, the relationship was in much, much better shape. And, you know, what uh, what could have been an extremely difficult period went rather smoothly because Lindy had prepared the way. And then Jim, of course, did an excellent job as ambassador himself before coming, before coming back as Secretary of Veterans Affairs. Let's pause for a moment for what I believe is one of the best schools of higher learning in the country, the University of Dallas, the premier Catholic liberal arts university in Texas. With campuses in Irving, Texas, and Rome, Italy, UD offers a rigorous and exciting core curriculum that sets it apart, an education rooted in the great works of Catholic and Western tradition, an education that ennobles and enables students in their pursuit of wisdom, truth, and virtue. Fidelity to man requires fidelity to the truth, which alone is the guarantee of freedom and of the possibility of integral human development. Those are the words of Pope Benedict, quoted at the University of Dallas, and guiding educators in all the departments of the university. Undergraduate, graduate, and certificate programs are available. Start your college odyssey at the University of Dallas today. Go to udallas.edu to learn more. You speak of Charles Colson and his uh, transition from enemy to friend, how did that happen? Well, it happened because I met him. <laughs> <laughs> he was never an enemy in any personal sense. I yeah, mean, I yeah, was a yeah. callow college kid, and when Chuck Colson said in those days that he would run over his grandmother for Richard Nixon, it occurred to me that I might enjoy doing the same thing to Mr. Colson. Then, <laughs> 20-some years later, we met, through the project that Father Richard Newhouse uh, was deeply involved in called Evangelicals and Catholics Together. And I came to know Chuck as really one of the great Christian witnesses of our time, uh, a thoroughly converted disciple, uh, a theologically sophisticated man. Uh, he had not only had an intense personal conversion in prison, uh, after his Watergate conviction, uh, he had then gone and studied theology in a serious way. And he had built what I think is one of the great uh, Christian ministries of our time, uh, Prison Fellowship, which had a remarkable success in not only humanizing the, the prison experience, but preparing uh, men uh, for productive lives in society once they had served their terms. So um, I came to really esteem uh, Chuck a great uh, deal. And while prison ministry goes on and the Colson Center goes on, uh, Chuck was a singular personality. And, and like Father Newhouse, he's just not replaceable. You, you, know, you can't swap people of this magnitude in and out. When I was in graduate school in the 1980s, George, uh, I big liberal myself, and all my liberal friends, uh, among us, Ronald Reagan was the most hated man in, in Washington, D.C., but number two was probably Henry Hyde. Well, why did we hate Henry Hyde so much? <laughs> I don't know, because even Henry's enemies in the Congress loved him. Yeah. Uh, he was an immensely likable human being, great storyteller, great joke teller, utterly honest, brilliant debater, 
very good company, uh, unapologetic and undisputed leader of the pro-life forces in, in the House of Representatives for almost three decades. But Henry did not make enemies. I remember when he took over the Judiciary Committee, I had helped him prepare some remarks for his opening hearing as chairman of judiciary after the Republicans took over the House in January of 95. And while I had been doing some speech writing uh, for Henry for a decade at that point, I had never heard him deliver a speech that I had helped him put together. And in those days, you could just walk into the Capitol and sit down and see what was going on. So I went up to the Hill and went into the Judiciary Committee hearing room, uh, sat in the back row. Henry gave the speech that I'd helped him craft. And at the end of it, two people who uh, would not have agreed with him on virtually anything, John Conyers and, and Pat Schroeder, as, as pro-choice as pro-choice gets, uh, were so moved by the speech that they leaned over the dais and shook his hand. Hmm. The one guy who did not respond that way was Chuck Schumer. He was in the House in those days. He came to the meeting late. He walked up the side of the hearing room eating a jelly donut, <laughs> plunked himself down on the dais besides his friend Howard Berman, and the two of them proceeded to chat with each other while the chairman was giving his speech. It was, it was, it was one of the most absurd, impolite, ungentlemanly things I think I've ever seen. My, my mother's sister was actually a state legislator in the state of Washington. Big liberal, big liberal Democrat, but she loved Scoop Jackson. What was so great about Scoop Jackson? Well, he's the opposite of Henry Hyde in a number of ways. I mean, Scoop was, uh, I, I think, one of the most consequential senators of the 20th century. He was the reference point on foreign and defense policy, really from the early 60s uh, through his death in 1983. The opposite of Henry Hyde, in this sense, he was the most uninspiring public personality uh, imaginable. I mean, he was a door Norwegian-American from Everett, Washington, and there was just no snap, crackle, and pop there at all. I mean, he was a perfectly charming man, a real gentleman privately, had a wonderful wife, Helen, uh, Helen Harden Jackson, who would have made a great first lady, as I think Scoop would have made a great president. He was very fond of his kids, but just no public charisma at all. And I think as as politics became more and more uh, dominated by television, that really finished him hmm. as a, a, a person with national political potential. People forget that Scoop Jackson was Jack Kennedy's second choice for vice president on the 1960 ticket. Hmm. If Lyndon Johnson had turned it down, Scoop Jackson would have been Vice President. Now that ticket, that ticket might not have won because uh, Johnson pulled Texas one one way or another <laughs> into the Democratic <laughs> Richard Daly, but, thank you. Well, that was. I mean, Texas was every bit as as dubious as Illinois. Uh, was it? Yeah. yeah. Had had a Kennedy Jackson ticket won, and Jackson had become president, that that was his best shot at it. 
Uh, he ran again in, in 68. He ran in 72. He ran in 76. He didn't run in 68. He ran in 72 uh, in a kind of desperate stop George McGovern move. And they, his most serious presidential campaign was 76. And he uh, won a couple of primaries, but that was Jimmy Carter's year. So, um, but uh, the point is that uh, Scoop, like Henry, like Lindy Boggs, like Sergeant Shriver, like Pat Moynihan, also in the book, like my old friend John Miller, longtime member of Congress and U.S. Special Ambassador to Combat Human Trafficking, these were serious people. And they went into public life to get things done. Politics for them was not performance art. Uh, you can no more imagine Scoop Jackson tweeting than than you can imagine him, you know, yodeling Thumbelina in the middle of the United States Senate. I mean, this they would just uh, people like this would just have regarded all of that as as contemptibly silly. And we need to recover some of that gravitas in our politics uh, today. So if this album of memories in which some of these, some of those uh, memorialized were serious public officials helps remind us of that, then that's a good thing, I think. I think that this is one of the, the real purposes of the book, uh, that it does uphold certain codes and, and, and ideals and examples that we feel burdened to try to try to carry on the tradition. It's not easy because there has been such a degradation of the culture uh, in recent decades. And as you and I both know, and as First Things has known since its inception, politics is always downstream from culture. So if the public moral culture has got some serious problems, then the politics are going to have some serious problems too. My own view is that this has been fantastically exacerbated by social media, by the Internet, by cable television. All of these things have have some purposes democratically. They've, they've broken that stranglehold on, on information and commentary that used to be exercised by a small number of media platforms, but my Lord, as I put it in the acknowledgments of, of the back of this book, Not Forgotten, if there's one thing that social media and the internet have taught us, it's that God invented editors for a reason. <laughs> we try. We, 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 we try. So, uh, you know, uh, George, you, you have Anwar Sadat in here. You know, I, I actually had lunch with President Carter once he was he's connected to Emory University and he, he'd have lunch with a professor once once a year and so he, he asked me to come over and he I, I got you know a, a lot of stories from him he really gave Sadat the the large bulk of the credit for the Camp David much more so than he gave to the Israelis there may be more more complication there with, with, with Jimmy Carter and his relationship to to Israel but he, you you think the same way about Sadat in that episode? Uh, Sadat clearly broke the ice, and that visit of his to Jerusalem was uh, really one of the uh, epic moments in the history of the the 
late 20th century. I think it is probably true that only deeply conservative Israeli prime minister like Menachem Begin could have then done the deal with Sadat. If that had been a labor prime minister in Israel, then Begin would have been a real problem in, in getting any peace agreement uh, settled. But uh, so I think there's, I think those two men deserve an, an awful lot of credit for being able to to think outside the box of their of their previous experience and to make something happen that that very few people thought uh, could happen. And of course, Sadat paid for it with his life. You quote something that says he wouldn't have been surprised that he would be assassinated because of this. No, I think he knew that what we now call jihadism or Islamic uh, extremism was building in Egypt, which is the home of the Muslim Brotherhood. And uh, that was not a stable political environment. So I think he expected that his assassination was a very real possibility. But he was also a man of deep religious faith who said, and I think I quote this in the little miniature of him, I will not die one minute before God decides it's time for me to die. Let me just mention, there are dozens of portraits in the book. This isn't just eight or nine, you know, 12 people in the book. For for the readers, there are dozens of portraits, including in your own family. Let me ask, how did you meet Father Newhouse? Richard and I met in 1978 when I was organizing a conference on international human rights uh, in Seattle, where I was then living. And he, he was actually pinch-hitting for Peter Berger. I had, uh, Peter had written a, what I still think is a brilliant article called Are There Universal Human Rights? But, uh, Peter's in, in the book, in commentary. too. Yeah, Peter, Peter's in the book, too. So I had written Peter Berger saying, can you come out to Seattle and address this question this the way you did it in commentary? And he said, no, I can't, but you could call my friend Richard John Newhouse. So uh, we met when I was in New York. Uh, and went to talk to him about coming out to uh, Seattle and doing this. And we just hit it off instantaneously and uh, were then, uh, you know, the closest of collaborators for the next 31 years. That was how we met. It was because Peter couldn't do the conference uh, and suggested that I, I call Richard. You say that you were addicted to the works of Tom Wolfe. Well, what got you about those? <laughs> Well, you know, some writers just make you feel good by the energy of their prose. And while I'm not uncritical of Tom Wolfe, uh, particularly in this little piece in the book, the the joie de vivre, the utter fascination with the human drama that that animates this very, very distinctive style of writing that a lot of people try to imitate and nobody really pulls it off. It's like H.L. Mencken. I mean, Nobody can write like Mencken, and they shouldn't try. Uh, nobody can write like Tom Wolfe, and they shouldn't try. So I was happy to include him among these 68, actually, portraits uh, that there are and, and not uh, forgotten uh, as a small gesture of gratitude for all of the reading pleasure he gave me over the years. The book is Not Forgotten, Elegies for and Reminiscence of a Diverse Cast of Characters, Most of Them Admirable. The book includes many more portraits, Jackie Robinson and Earl Weaver, manager of the Orioles, Baltimore Orioles back in the 60s and 70s, uh, of Pete Seeger, 
uh, which has pointed things to say about Governor Cuomo, of Albert Einstein and William F. Buckley, Father James Shaw, Cardinal Avery Dulles, Daniel Patrick Moynihan, and many, many more. George Weigel, thank you for joining us. Thanks, Mark. Thanks for having me. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930.